Welcome to the Alternative Data Podcast. Welcome to the Alternative Data Podcast, powered by Exabel. I'm Mark Fleming-Williams. In this episode, I spoke to Adam Braff, formerly of McKinsey and Chief Data Acquisition Officer at Point72. In our conversation, Adam and I talked about some of the difficulties involved in extracting alpha from alternative data, including in how to set up your team most efficiently. In other news, I have written a blog post about alternative data discovery mechanisms and specifically tracking the emergence of alternative data marketplaces. Please find it in the episode links. Adam and my conversation begins with his arrival at Point72 in 2016. So, so I was recruited into Point72 to uh, augment the team of data acquisition folks in a more strategic way and a huge focus, obviously, on alternative data. And we'd had, we've had, I've had Michael Retche on this, on this call on, sorry, on this podcast before. Um, and I think he kind of predates you by about a year. I think he was there in, in 15, um, kind of setting up the data, the alternative data science team there. Um, and so you were, you were kind of stepping into those shoes. You were stepping into that, into that world a bit. Standing on the shoulders of Michael Retche <laughs> and Gene Exter. And just yep. the pantheon of alternative data heroes who have been on your podcast. Yes, I was uh, <laughs> definitely benefiting from the infrastructure that they had built and what they had started to put together. And the question now was, how do we take that to the next level? And in a context where the firm is always adapting and changing, I mean, it's a multi-manager platform. There were probably 80 portfolio managers at the time, some of whom had turned over since um, the time of Gene and Michael. And there were always new kinds of data to acquire as well. So I was brought in to try to figure out, you know, we can't buy it all. So what, what do we go focus on buying and building and scraping and collecting and any other way you can think of them getting data uh, legally? Yeah. So this is your, I want to say this is your first direct hands-on experience with alternative data. When I'm saying that you've been, you've been working with data all your career, but using alternative data to, um, to uh, make money in the markets, essentially. That was the first time that you'd done it. Um, when did you first come across the idea of it? When did you first kind of get involved in or, or kind of get intrigued by or, or, or want to be, you know, or, or consider doing it? I had started poking around in 2015 after AT&T slash DirecTV because I wanted to um, test the thesis that you could monetize data and acquire diverse sources of data in a way that would more directly lead to value than what happens inside of a corporation, right? So in a sense, a corporation is also, a corporate data and analytics department is also a place that takes data that happens to be internal to the company and packages it up and figures out how to optimize value for investors. It's just the investors in that company, right? Mm -hmm. So the, inve the buy side version of that is to say, well, there are so many different kinds of data available for so many different investing strategies that we really ought to take a hard look at what's out there and figure out what to acquire. So really it, it was the, I want to say around 2016 when I joined was when I started to dig into this question in earnest. And I came in with a number of hypotheses about where the value would be. And um, some of those were true and some of those were not. What was true and what was not? Well, you know, one thing, one thing that I suspected going in was 
that there was a geographic component to this where a lot of the data for the U.S. investors buying U.S. stocks would be quite um, overused and the alpha had been drained from it. It was already in 2016 that uh, a lot of the value had been competed away. And I thought there'd be a lot more opportunity in Europe and Asia. I'd say that's pretty hard to create from scratch, right? You can certainly have a team of folks who are acquiring data over there. And I did put people on the ground in London and, um, uh, and Singapore to acquire data for the other regions of the firm. Um, but I, I don't know that that's where the biggest bang for the buck is, right? I mean, there are, are certainly um, opportunities to get ahead of the market when there aren't a lot of other people buying the data that's out there. But you just have to deal with a lot of other issues, even translation to the extent you want to have your central analytics team processing it to the biggest concern, which are the regulatory differences across these countries and how insider trading law might be um, interpreted. So I would say one thing that was probably not as true as I had um, thought going in was the uh, importance of uh, of what's going on in other countries. Was there alternative? Was there alpha to be found in buying alternative data from um, from vendors' data that's kind of freely on the market? Or when you're talking about putting people in in other in other geographies, were they you know proper like? wranglers like that they that actually the alpha had to be found by unearthing data which hadn't previously been unearthed everything i was doing and that i had set up uh centrally for the global data acquisition team looked at what was paid and what was free what was push versus pull meaning the responses to specific questions we got from portfolio managers versus things that we discovered that might be valuable in the Mm. cooking parlance, it would be kind of an iron chef approach where you get an interesting new ingredient to work with and you have to figure out all the ways you can prepare it. A lot of what you do when you're a data hunter and you're trying to um, find something that's unique, that's going to have alpha in it, is you need to find a way to test it to see if it's going to be valuable, even in the absence of specific use cases that have come in the door from the portfolio managers. So I would say it's equally true for non-US data hunters as it is for the US ones, that you have to bring that creative spirit and that push and pull approach to your assessment of a data set. Is it proprietary knowledge and in, is, there a, is there a secret trick to how you can test data for value even if you don't know what, what you ultimately want to use it for? I would say it's helpful to go in with an extremely good uh, understanding. It's akin to what the, the two Sigma examples that you gave where you go in with pretty good business knowledge and you know what kinds of problems are material for this industry and for the industries that are touched by a data set and to test the data, not only for all the things that your naive data scientist would test for freshness and completeness and depth and breadth and missing, you know, cells and all that, but also for uh, how it answers questions that are meaningful for that industry. So that requires you to have, a bit of business knowledge and business sensibility on the data sourcing team itself, or a very close collaboration with the people who are asking those questions, which gets to questions around how multi-manager funds generally are organized and whether it's possible to really tap into the brains of the people who will ultimately be using the data at the time that you make the assessment. I think a good substitute for that is to have very knowledgeable, business savvy, and probably sector-specific data hunters 
who are able to ask the right questions of the data when they're examining it to see what the ROI potential of it could be. And that was how I organized the team very much around um, sector expertise. What kind of questions are the right questions? Well, let's take the example of WeWork. I was in a WeWork just last week. I got uh, I responded to a win back campaign where they tried to bring me back after the pandemic because I had been a pretty avid user of uh, their services in 2019. Mm. And as I was going to the office there, the co-working space, um, and keep in mind, they're you know still a private company and there's a chance they'll go public through a, a SPAC at some point this year. So there'll be an interesting, they will one day be an interesting company to examine from an alternative data standpoint. But I was thinking about my walk there and all of the different forms of data exhaust that come from users' interactions with WeWork. You pay for your subscription on a credit card, you receive a bunch of email every time you do that, but also when you check in, you get all the COVID health warnings and stuff. You are physically in the building if you're using it. So there are geolocation things coming out of all the apps on your cell phone. You probably download their app, you visit their website and leave a quick stream trail. I've never been to a WeWork with a parking lot, but I assume they exist in the suburbs. Mm -hmm. So there's probably yeah. a satellite taking a picture of that and you know, you're searching for it and so on. So all of your listeners, your sophisticated listeners are gonna recognize these as the precursors to signals that are packaged up by um, commercial data vendors, alternative data vendors. So, you know, one set of questions you can ask is, you know, put yourself in the shoes of the most basic kind of newbie portfolio manager at a multi-manager fund. And he's just trying to call the quarter, right? He's just trying to say, what are the revenues that we were going to be? I want to draw the trend. One day this thing will be public and I want to be get, you know, I want to get really good at um, predicting revenue and earnings and maybe member counts for WeWork. So I'm going to try to get this data um, and I want to back test it to see how accurately it has uh, you know, measured, uh, how, how accurately it has measured revenue and member counts in the past, perhaps by checking it against other data sets. So that's one way of doing it, kind of the most boring way. The thing about a multi-manager fund, and I'm not talking about any one fund in particular now, but just generally, and this is mm -hmm. also true for um, pension funds and other investors um, that I deal with who have multiple people looking at a given name is right next to that guy, there's another PM and she has a different thesis on WeWork. And she's thinking about game theory and how everybody else is probably looking at that boring old credit card and email data, trying to predict what WeWork subscriber counts are gonna be this quarter. But she can tell from her analysis of the data that there are systematic errors in that data set. It's overrepresentative on one coast of the country, or they're not tagging all of the WeWork transactions because some of them look a little different in the email and credit cards, or the points of interest are not tagged correctly in the geo data. Or she can get the data a little bit faster or process it faster, and she can arbitrage that difference. So. There is another strategy which says, I know other people are using alternative data in the boring way, so I'm going to be more sophisticated about it. And make money off them. And make money off them. And then there's a, a third PM, right? This place is huge. And so there's another PM sitting next to her, and he's thinking about WeWork the way I used to think about 
uh, customers at DirecTV, which is there's something about customer lifetime value that is the most important fact here for driving the stock in the future. And he devotes himself to understanding customer lifetime value of WeWork customers, everything from all these email campaigns that are going out the door to customer satisfaction and what's the churn rate and really trying to understand what is the long-term profitability from each cohort of customers that come to the door. And so he's going to trade on the basis of what he sees from that signal. And then you've got another person sitting next to him and she's, and she's got a totally different approach. She thinks about human capital and she thinks about WeWork as an employer. And fundamentally, the interesting facts for her are about new hires and job postings and churn, attrition of employees, I mean. And you know, she's looking at data from professional social networks and job listings and employee satisfaction boards and payroll data and everything else. And the thing you and the thing you realize if you are the poor guy who's in charge of data acquisition for a company like this is you've got to figure out which data sets are going to have a positive ROI for conceivably all of them, right? And maybe they don't even know what's possible to do with the data. And you would use, you would not only buy different data sets for these different users, but they would be willing to pay you internally different amounts for them. And they would look at the data sets as being valuable for different reasons, right? The second, the second PM who is arbitraging and making money off of the first group, she's really concerned about the freshness of the data and the ability to normalize it differently from other folks, you know, whereas the, the fourth PM, she, the one who's doing talent stuff, she's looking at completely different kinds of data sets and she's not even bothering with the credit card stuff. So a lot of what you learn um, working with different investors, especially large multi-manager ones, is there are many different ways to use alternative data and they directly imply different kinds of data to buy and different attributes and what you should be willing to pay for it. I think, well, it's a great, great example. I think it, I think it opens up questions about what is the perfect flow of information in a situation like this, in that, is it, um, so you've just painted the picture of a data scout needing to be going out there, um, bearing in mind, it, 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 it reminded me of the description, it reminded me of a babysitter dealing with different kinds of, different kind of people you needed, needed to be fed. Um, but, uh, so, but bearing in mind the different needs of the, of the, potential portfolio managers um, wrangling for them um, and so and so perhaps coming up with ideas for them and, and kind of feeding it to them but then the other route is for the portfolio managers to be saying look this is this is what I this is what I really want um, and this is the question that I need to solve and so I need this data to go and do it what do you think is the optimal do you have a view on what is the optimal flow um, or communication or, or kind of connection between these two sides of a business like this, um, of from data scout to portfolio manager and vice versa. And also you've got to fit in the data wrangling, or sorry, the data science team somewhere in the middle as well, who, who are less one side or the others expected to do two of these three jobs. Well, that last bit, I think you put your finger on it. So I don't know that there's any one optimal structure in some sense, we're talking about process excellence and questions about talent and making those your hallmarks of how you're differentiating yourself as an investment firm, right? If you're going to be really good at setting up a data purchasing process, a data evaluation process, that could be something that you do that's really special. And then it wouldn't necessarily work for everybody. 
I do think it relates heavily to the last thing you said, which is how integrated are these functions and how multi-skilled are the people playing with the data? So, you know, one thesis you might have when you hear funds talking about quantum mental approaches is a lot of the intelligence is going to be distributed and sitting out with the portfolio managers where they have data scientists on their teams who are able to dig deep into the data and uh, maybe even influence some of these data sourcing questions, but in a highly proprietary way at the level of that team. And they're hoarding that information, but they're really optimizing all of their processes around how the data speaks to them. Keep in mind that some of these data sets might work better for completely different styles of investing. It could be, for example, that clickstream data or geolocation data has so much attrition in the panel that it's not really good for long run kind of percentage increase type year on year math, right? It could be that it doesn't work as well for that, but it works really well for any slice in time doing a cross-sectional analysis to see which you know parts of the country are getting more sales than other parts or which day parts are doing better than others. And you can build a trading strategy around some divergence between two stocks as opposed to trying to plug in a, a number in your spreadsheet that fits the existing structure that you have, right? So the more you have people who are well-versed in the data who are very close to the line of where the money's being made, the more you're going to be able to innovate strategies that work with the kind of data that's out there in the market. So I would tend to be more vertically integrated in my approach instead of having extremely compartmentalized teams where one guy tries to source the data based on his best guess, throws it over the wall to a data scientist who tries to model it as accurately as possible to mm. the KPIs that are known, and they throw it over the wall to somebody else who writes a report and somebody else you know, feeds it to a PM. That's, that's, probably, that's probably the least good way to do it. Um, and I, I think there's more to be done in creating a really differentiated approach that asks smarter questions of the data that conform to the shape of what the data is possible, uh, possible for doing. But that's but that then moves towards a team of superhumans who can do everything. It's the people who are good at the getting the data, the good at people are good at questioning the data, and the people who are good at having investment ideas. Um, so that's you know the more integrated it is and the less compartmentalized it is, the more you need to find this this super breed, which I understand everyone struggles with slightly because it it's often different different skills and different heads. You know, it's it's. Uh... If you think of it as a problem of finding natural talent that looks like that, then you're right. It's very hard to do, and you'll certainly compete away a lot of the surplus by giving it to them in the form of compensation. But I will say this. I teach business analytics and data visualization to graduate students um, at NYU, and a lot of what I base my teaching on is the idea that you can actually train some of these skills, right? You can take a person who is Maybe they were a programmer when they were eight years old, like me, but they never really thought about business until they were you know, in their 20s. Um, or maybe they know something about statistics and a little bit about how to move the data around, but they don't know much about business. Or maybe they came out of a strategy consulting firm. They know an industry really well and the value drivers in that industry and how it makes money. And they're comfortable with Excel, but they don't really know how to you know, write in Python. And you can cross-train them. And... Um, a lot of it just depends on the motivation of the person. If they, if they have a, a kind of a willingness to learn new skills that will make them into these super talented superhumans. Um, and, you know, that's maybe that's the part that has to be intrinsic is the motivation and the desire to do that because they're going to internalize the gains 
from becoming a superhuman, right? They're not merely going to be a staff function person who's going to be stuck in an individual contributor role for a long time, but they have themselves the possibility of creating a trading strategy that they can participate in the profits from. So there are probably ways to, to make your own superhuman, but you have to line up a lot of different cultural and other attributes. I think we've got to wait for the genetics to get good, you know, the the stem cells, whatever. Get the, we need to we need to build them from the ground up, Adam. That's the only solution. <laughs> I'll I'll be in the control group. I'll I'll just sit and watch you do that. <laughs> okay, um, okay, brilliant. So then, um, so 2019 um, is uh, you leave Point Seventy Two and you embark on two ventures. You start as an instructor at New York University and founder of Braffen Company. What do, what do they entail? The class that I teach at NYU that I mentioned before is business analytics and data visualization. It's teaching grad students how to use many different forms of alternative data that are uh, contributed by a lot of my friends in the industry to solve business problems on real companies and then to visualize them, in this case, using Tableau to get the students to fully explore a problem from the very beginning of why is Wendy's not making as much money as they used to? And how does that relate to the data that you can see from their social media account and the foot traffic that we can tell from geolocation? How do these things relate to each other? Let's create a problem statement and a thesis, test it and write it up and report it out. So it's that kind of a problem that is very business focused, but gets all the way into the data and the students are themselves getting their hands dirty with it and doing the analysis and visualizing the results. So that's, that's education. That's probably 20% of what I do is that teaching. And then 80% is consulting where I'm helping investors and corporates on exactly the problems that we just talked about, helping investors figure out how to set up their analytics function, their data function, how to do something differentiated with it that fits what they're best able to do, but being different from what others are doing. And then on the corporate side, helping mostly consumer businesses figure out how to optimize shareholder value by using alternative data and internal data to um, make customers happier and more profitable. Excellent. And so, and so the the helping investors side. Are you are you helping hedge funds or are you spreading the spreading the love to to wider in the asset management space? All across different kinds of asset managers, family offices, pension funds, hedge funds. Um, so uh, it's all it's all stuff that I love and. Uh, uh, always happy to jump in. I like the, the diversity in the audience because that helps me think about what will make them differentiated from everybody else. Mm. And so you've got quite a nice wide view. You've worked in one of the, uh, as, a, as a data, chief data acquisition officer for one of the big hedge funds on the on the street. And, um, and now you're looking across the spectrum. Where do you see alternative data as being now? What do you see, where, what point in its development do you see it as being? And have you, what what trends do you see right now as being underway and kind of ahead of us? It's a little opaque right now because we all in this community used to get together, you know, four times a year at live conferences. And I don't have the heart to go to a lot of the, uh, no offense to those who are putting these video conferences on, but I, I don't have as much time for those. And so it does get me out of the swim a little bit on the latest and greatest of what's happening. Um, but mm. I am able to keep in touch through all of the the work that I do to acquire new data sets for my existing clients. So I stay on top of things that way. And the I podcast think, you listen to. And the podcast, of course. I mean, there, there's only one. And so, um, 
I will say that the deflationary pressures in the price of any one alternative data set, um, it, that probably will continue for a while. I would say it's hard for a data set to continue commanding um, uh, high prices when it gets used more broadly. Um, but then there are always new data sets coming in that are um, attempting to be differentiated either as a read against the first you know, existing data sets or serving completely different kinds of use cases like the talent uh, use cases that I talked about earlier, where you now can come to an understanding of which companies are gaining and losing top talent. And that can be the basis for a longer term investing strategy. So probably I would predict um, diminishing unit prices on existing um, data sets, but uh, new, new types of data coming in all the time. Okay, and um, and in terms of kind of alternative data's development, so it's getting. Does that does that suggest that it's becoming um, kind of more par for the course, like uh, as they say, table stakes? It's it's now because it's because there's more users and, and cheaper prices. It's now kind of democratizing wider to a wider user. Or um, could you could you read beyond that? I just think a slightly more nuanced reading of it is. Occasionally, a data set will blow up or kind of drop out of the gene pool, right? So, in some sense, uh, intermediaries and individual data sources disappear for regulatory and other reasons. So, that does inject a little bit of uh, energy into some of the existing ones that were competing with it. And um, yeah, so I don't, I don't know that there'll be like a heat death of the universe, and I don't know that the table stakes argument will last forever. It could be that after a long enough period of buying these table stakes data sets, somebody, you know, the CFO realizes that they're not getting any measurable ROI from it. Maybe they're not measuring it the right way or otherwise, and they stop buying it. And then a little more alpha is possible as a result of that. I will say one thing I've seen from a couple of decades of doing data and analytics projects more generally mm. is things get forgotten all the time and everything old is new again. There was a guy who had the role of head of customer data and analytics at JP Morgan Chase some two decades before I was there. <laughs> so there, wow. there will be another one two decades from now, and they'll be relearning stuff that I learned there. And probably the same is true for some of these hedge funds. So the table stakes argument is mitigated a little bit by just the renewal that happens in the universe. Yeah. Brilliant. Well, that's that's a promising note, I think, to end on, Adam. Um, I think uh, I think that's great. Um, thank you very much for for the the full gamut of your of your wide experience that you've just run us through, um, and for your and for your um, very interesting analysis. Um, so yeah, thanks very much for 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 coming on, and um, and and look forward to watching your your incoming project projects with uh, with great interest. Thank you. And anybody who wants to stay close to those projects and everything else I'm working on can go to my website at braf.co and subscribe to my blog. Fantastic. Thanks very much. Thanks, Mark.